Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my affable co-host Teos Avadia. Hey Teos, welcome to the second recording of September that we are doing. Nice. Um, I no longer know what time is because due to the folks on our Patreon Discord, I started watching the show Dark, and uh, and I'm very impressed by mm. it. Have you seen mm. this? We watched. We binged the first three seasons. I think there's either three or four seasons. So we did the first two seasons, maybe got a couple into the third. And then my wife started having dreams about it. And when she starts dreaming about it, that's when I know it's time to stop. So we've we've put it aside, but we will go back to it at some point soon. But yes, it is an excellent show. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, I'd sort of heard it was like, oh, like a sort of like dark version of stranger things and i didn't find it to be that at all like i think the magic of stranger things is sort of this balance between 80s whimsy and then the kind of like terrible things that are happening uh, mixed in with the appeal of D. but this is like um it's just a, a really good mystery and puzzle and and it's a lot of fun I'm, I'm surprised how much fun it is for both my wife and i to to go through this and, and try to disentangle it and, and remember who are these characters and yeah, that, that was so. That's been great, and and now I don't know what timeline I'm in. So, yeah, yeah, it's we it's the same that we were talking about this. The show is cool because you, as the the viewer, have some mysteries you don't know, but there are some things you do know that the characters don't. Yeah. So it's got both of those things happening at the same time. It's like okay, we know what that person doesn't and what they're going through because of that, but we also don't know lots of things yeah. it's sort of a lost the the show lost yeah. but uh a little more a little less commercial i guess uh would right. be the way to put it yeah yeah it's not as so smooth and yeah uh, um it also yeah. makes me think that it's it's fascinating to me that outside of a very few companies you don't see anybody trying to make adventures like this generally and i get it that it's hard mm -hmm. but you know like i i would think that somebody at wizards when they're thinking about multiverse spanning things, right? This kind of approach, it doesn't have to be to this extent, but it could be on the table, right? To to make the multiverse more magical, mysterious versus just, you know, hey, another portal to another place, right? Like, perfect. Yeah, it, it, it would, adventures like that would require a bit of buy-in from the players ahead of time. Uh, and some DMs and you know some DMs don't want that. Some DMs mm -hmm. just want the players to be reacting, and so that sort of thing is harder to do. And then some players don't want to buy into the story. They want to react. They just want it to be, whether for game mechanical reasons or story reasons, they just want to be reacting to what situation set in front of them. And it's harder to do that in a time twisty story yeah uh so that's true if if it could be done yeah if it could be oh. done i'd love to read it play it we'd have to see yeah uh but thanks to our uh discord we yeah, teos got into dark and thanks to our listener corner we're going to get some questions and thoughts from our listeners first is kurt oogle via youtube who has this question do you have any tips or tricks for rules regarding poison? Is there a system that you feel handles it particularly well? 
Throughout the various editions of D&D, the rule mechanics for poison have often been contentious to the point that the game designers seem to want to avoid having it in the game. Like magic or explosives, it can make scenarios seem too unbalanced and may be somewhat off-putting in an already violent game. Thanks, Kurt, who is trying to appease the player of an assassin slash apothecary. <laughs> it all makes sense now. Teos, you had some initial thoughts on this, so hit us. Yeah, I mean, I think and, you know this came off of our episode. We were talking about how the DMG uh, handles poison and disease and and other kind of long term, long well, other weird things like that. <laughs> and um, and you know, I think the the question at a broad level is that it's really hard to design a rule for poison as the DMG does, that then fits all of your needs. It's almost a, a backwards application of the logic, right? Because if our poison is supposed to be a situational pro problem, like we're talking about the, the noble fed the party poison, you have 24 hours to find the cure, right? Like that's a story thing. And it, it, that requires a different application where you need to have these 24 hours to solve it and maybe feel its effects and maybe they increase over time. You really want something completely custom that's gonna touch on that story angle. Or if it's a monster threat, you know, the drow poisons their blade, what should that do? Um, and 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 that gets into, well, isn't the drow already a balanced CR? So is their CR higher? Uh, if it's a one-time threat, like spiders, right? Classically, spiders have done a bite. And then if you fail at saving the ground's poison, there's this big hit of damage. But that is actually balanced into it. It's just it's a sort of lopsided on or off switch of what happens. Um, so all of this... It makes it so that I think the DMG's one poison rule really falls short. And it's why generally in adventures, if a poison comes up, you see it just tailored to that situation rather than reflecting one set of logic. But, you know, Kurt's talking about assassin apothecary, Sean. And I guess there, you know, we might start with the fact that, well, your class is already balanced, whatever class they are. What are we supposed to give them? Um, what, what would you recommend? Yeah, what what Teos is talking about here is in terms of the game mechanic, short term and long term, right? Short term is something that happens and it's over and it threatens you in that short term with hit points, maybe with a condition that lasts for a minute. Uh, and so you can look at it in that way. And that's sort of where we're looking at it here in terms of a player class, because a player uh, could poison a monster. If if it's sick for 24 hours, that doesn't matter because the monster is going to be dead in approximately 24 seconds. So that has less. That's why we have poison damage now, which is something that we didn't have in previous editions. Rather than, than dealing with this balance between short-term and long-term effects, we can just say, okay, you, we, we have monsters, we have characters that poison people, you do poison damage instead of bludgeoning or instead of fire, and it's the same thing. If you want to add a short-term condition, then it's there is a balance that is supposed to take place for challenge rating, which is, okay, if your poison stuns someone, that's going to add something to the challenge rating of, of a monster or the strength of a class. We can figure that out mathematically. Yeah. Uh, if you if you frighten someone with your poison, that's, that's a thing. If you... Uh, drain their strength that that's something else 
then it's then now the long-term thing is what we've talked about last week, which is how does that fit into the game in terms of the story? And that's where you have 24 hours to find the, the cure. You can't, it's very, very hard to get both of those things working together in a way that's satisfying. <laughs> People, players hate exhaustion, but they, they hate when their characters become exhausted, right? That's poison. It's, yeah. it's the same, it's the same situation. There is a long-term effect that may get worse or may get better, but then how do you work that out? And how do you tell a player, oh, this is fun. This is fun. I'm <laughs> going to poison your character and you are just going to get more debilitated over time and possibly die at the end. But this is this is fun. This is good. We're going to make a great story out of this. Can you make a great story out of it? Yes. Is it easy to do? No. It's easier to say you're poisoned. You feel fine. But you know that when this time runs out, bad things are going to happen. That's a more fun story. Mm -hmm. But it's less feasible to work into a game system uh, when you when you're trying to do like incremental problems. So, yeah, the, what I would say for the player is just have them do poison damage. If you're making a class, give them the ability of uh, to make certain kinds of poisons that might do less damage, but might cause a, a monster to be stunned or, or a a yeah. creature that is attacked by the character to have disadvantage on the next attack roll because their vision's blurry or you know whatever reason uh to give those small things that still feel like poison without making it a longer term problem in the game yeah i think it, you generally because the game is already balanced you have to take something that's already in the system and turn it into that source of poison. So you're either making their subclass into a poisoner class, so comb the subclasses and find one where you think, well, I could reskin this to just be poison effects. Or you have to use consumable magic items and make poison really rare and come up with how you find it. And those consumables, the way that you would, you know, potions or scrolls or anything else are being used every now and then. Um, or something of that nature. Like you in some way need to, to do that or a system of trade-offs. Or something like, you know, like every time they crit, something could happen because of poison, but it's not happening. So the equivalent of a strong magic item, if you will, you know, instead of the, uh, you know, something that crits and here's the the awesome damage effect, well, it's the poison gets released or something like that. Uh, dagger venom could be an interesting type of, of uh, magic item to give them and play with. And, you know, they can store up poisons and maybe one of them releases on a crit. Something, something like that could be interesting without unbalancing it because all the other players would otherwise go what can my character get or can we all use poison <laughs> right and, and and that's that's the other thing about it is having a character class that can do it's one thing oh i could put venom on my blade well why don't i make venom for everybody and now everyone's doing an extra 76 damage on their attacks and it it loses its uh in world yeah. uh logic yeah the other thing yeah that happens with poison is at higher levels everyone has access to hero's feast mm. and it's such a popular spell which then makes you immune to poison so it's a, yet another thing in the game where at low level it's a huge benefit or a huge risk or you know a huge variable within the game and then at higher levels it's there's it's just nothing 
And that reminds me of another thing when it comes to things like poisons is that if you have a character that's uh, going to be doing poison damage all the time, I would just make it a blanket rule that undead are immune to it. Uh, in the rules, most of them are, but not all. Just make them all immune, right. and then that way the player always knows, hey, it's undead, I'm not going to waste this. Versus, like, at least I, as a player, I hate wondering whether, you know, my poison thorns will do something or whatever. Like, just, it's undead, no. You know, it's, it's an easier rule if you're going to have a lot of undead in the campaign or give them some way to figure it out because they're a poisoner, you know, something like that. Uh, because it's very frustrating from the player side to not know whether you can waste a, a precious resource, especially on it, or, or choose an action that's going to deal with no damage. Awesome. So, Kurt, thank you for that question. And now the next question comes from Andrew B. via Twitter. If you were making the first major adventure release for D&D &D 2024, what would that adventure be? What it, would it be like? Not story per se, but type of story, such as setting, theme, level range, etc. What do you think Wizards of the Coast will do? Will we see a reprint? And so I've been thinking about this, so I was mm. glad when Andrew asked it. He asks good and questions. <laughs> as I am often, he does. As I am often want to do, I will answer a question with not just one question, but several questions. The first question would be, what are you trying to do with this first adventure? Are you trying to tempt new players, people who might be just coming in? Are you trying to keep existing 5e players with something that's really wild or really uh, uh, unique? Or are you, are you trying to make something that's sort of a basic adventure but make it solid? Or are you trying to bring nostalgia into it to tempt maybe people that are playing still playing older editions and haven't made the jump yet? Those are those are, That's the first question. What are you trying to do? Right now, I think if, if it were coming out within the next six months, my answer would be, well, look at Baldur's Gate 3. It, it is in the zeitgeist of gamers. It is in the zeitgeist of video game fantasy RPG players. They are the perfect target group. If you're going after people who maybe aren't playing D&D yet, but love games, love adventure games, love role-playing adventure games... I would make Baldur's Gate something mm. the first adventure because we know that video gamers will spend money and that's what you need as an audience. So hit them while they're curious. Hit them with a D&D adventure that not just mentions Baldur's Gate but brings in plot hooks, side quests, the NPCs from that video game and just, just go. Because not only are you bringing in those video game players, maybe you're sending D&D players who might not have gotten into the video game yet over in that direction as well. Mm. However, we don't know when that first 2024 adventure is coming out. Is it going to be released on the heels of the core books? Assuming the core books come out at the later end of 2024. And if you don't have this first adventure ready to go, you're talking 2025. So over a year now, almost a year and a half probably, until that first game comes out, will Baldur's Gate 3 still be in the zeitgeist? Maybe, but probably not. So what will be in the zeitgeist then? Stranger Things final season? Mm. Uh, the new D&D &D TV series is supposedly mm. in the works? Uh, 
if, if that's going to be in the zeitgeist and now you need to coordinate with your partners and your own internal teams to figure out what's going to be in the zeitgeist hey marketing hey sales hey <laughs> whatever what are we what's going to be happening then hey uh license our license team who are we licensing with and and what what might be coming out then point it in that direction and go from there uh so there's lots of things that i would do but i would need to answer all of those questions first and i don't have answers to those questions so i like i like a lot of what you're saying i mean really I like all of it but um the, the things that really res resonate with me, with me is almost everything you're saying involves new players. Um, and I think that's what you'd want to look at. Like, that's one of the answers to the question is that you've got to address the fact that you, as D&D, &D, should want to grow the audience. So you need to have something that will have broad appeal and bring in a lot of folks. You're not going to hit them with a nostalgia piece over it. Um, and it's interesting to note that, you know, we're getting Fendelver and Below right now, which does serve as an introduction, certainly has in the past. It can be an introduction. Um, but one piece I'd add to everything you said is that you ideally want an adventure that does something that none of the starter sets have really done well for D&D, &D, and that is launch other experiences. And I think a common complaint has been that if you buy a starter set adventure and you run it, you're not sure what to connect to. Like um, the uh, Storm, why can I never remember the name of it? Storm. Stormwreck Isle. Wreck Isle, thank you. Uh, Stormwreck Isle, you know, ends on a sort of weird level that doesn't link into any of the old adventures, which sort of link to the starter set level-wise, but often not thematically very well and often have a good piece that you want to run as first. And so I think that if there was something that was a little better, it was really designed to end in a way that would lead to other adventures that might work really well something that was an obvious hook to even things that are maybe many things that have been published and will be published because they have that sort of you've met these contacts and the world's your oyster from here where do you want to go and would expressly say to the dm your group can go to a or b or c or d you know go for it this is this all links up and here's how that would be really useful mm -hmm. yeah so, you know, we could we could answer this in a ton of different ways, and I think we have. <laughs> uh, but with putting our business hats on, as friends of mine say, our Ferengi ears, or putting those on, what do we? Uh, how do we best synergize this adventure with whatever other initiatives are happening at the time? So that's a uh, sort of short and it's not a cop out, but it's yeah, a. No. This is this is what we would do, given all of these other things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything else? You good? No, no. I think that's great. I mean, th this is one of these where you really the, the the answer to this question is sitting down in a lot of meetings and working through things until you end up with the remaining logical <laughs> answer that still stands after you batter it with all the questions. Mm-hmm. For sure. And now we will get to our news and our commentary section, starting with the Unearthed Arcana 2024 place test packet number seven. Uh, it you, is out. You and I it read is it. Ready. Cover to cover, right, Sean? 
cover to cover in the sense that I read the front and then I read the end. You know, let, let me at least uh, look at the first word and the last word. I have now done that too. 57 pages in between. Okay, what does it get? Well, we get in it, The Barbarian has been redone, including a completely new subclass called The Path of the World Tree. They updated the Berserker, The Wild Heart, which was formerly the Totem Warrior, and the Zealot subclasses. Uh they messed around with attacking recklessly for a bit. Uh, brutal critical, get some damage buffs, etc. Do uh, you want to talk about the fighter real quick? Yeah, and what I might say, Sean, is you know we've we've in our in our show notes put in uh, kind of what they did for each class, courtesy of Ian World. Thank you, Ian World, uh, for summarizing this because I have not looked at this. I've I've done a little listening to folks talking about it, but that's about it. And in general, what I see here for the Barbarian, the Fighter, the Sorcerer, the Warlock, and the Wizard is, on one hand, a retreat back from sort of various Unearthed Arcana attempts that happened in the first packets to something that feels a lot more like the current 2014 version, but with a few changes. And so e each of the classes sort of has a little bit that is changing. Um, Sometimes it's renaming, sometimes it's a, it's a tweak to how things work. Um, at a broad level, things like class spell lists are back. So that whole idea of, I forget what they're even called, but, you know, arcane and divine and primal or whatever it was, we're back to saying, you know, here's the wizard class list. Um, there are things from Tasha's called everything that are now expressly in here. Um, we see updates to some of the spells. So there's a lot here that, that uh, I think... You know, we've gone a long on a long trip to end up almost where I would have liked the beginning to be, but maybe I should be happy that this is the end point, right? We're not getting a wild divergent, even if compatible, 2024. We're getting a 2024 that feels a lot closer to 2014. And I think that's probably good for the game. Um, you can take a link, look at the actual document itself. We've got a link here. <laughs> Jeremy Crawford did a 90-minute interview presentation on the changes uh, and, and what's behind them. And then we've got coverage of, of the in-world linked here as well. I don't know, Sean, any, any other thoughts on, on UA7? No, I think we've talked about it before. Once they hit the hit on the idea that, okay, A, the game is not going to change dramatically. It's not going to be a, you know, two to three or three to four or four to five. This is going to be, 5.001 uh that's i was like okay cool i don't need to study every single change i'm gonna like some of the changes i'm not gonna like some of the other changes uh the only thing that i fear and it's not even a fear it's more a cynical nod is when you try different things and you look at the reviews from the players, from the DMs, and what you notice is a trend that anything that was changed for making it less powerful was hated, and everything that was changed to make it more powerful was liked, then that's the time when you need to pay less attention to the your playtest feedback. Or because all you're right? doing is Uncover the why of it, not, not right. the damage and whatever of it, but the... Well, well that's why... That's, that's assuming that you've figured out the why. The why being, okay, well, this gives 
either more options or more power to player characters, then all you're doing is yeah. having institutionalized power creep. Well, uh, I'll say which, another which thing, again, Sean, if I, I can cut I, I'm, you. I'm fine with. Yeah. yeah, if I can yeah. cut in here, just another thing to piggyback off of this is that these almost all the feedback is coming from people reading things rather than playing things, which is very different than D&D Next, sure. where people were playing through packets and trying out these different iterations. And so it's fantastic to me that we were just, at, you know, I was just at PAX West running hundreds and hundreds of players through 2014. Why weren't those players trying out 2024 to get excited for 2024 and to get really good play feedback of how it works at the table? But nobody in this entire process has ever created a playable packet. And I think that's a really, really wild thing. And it's equally wild that tying also into things you're seeing, the, the Unearthed Arcana has made these broad tests of things. And I have to go back and say, well, why did you do those things? You did those things either because you thought the system needed to change or because you thought um, because there were problems or you thought that this new thing was better. But you felt a need for these things. And now you're saying there is no need for these things. And I, to me, that's not either it was needed or it wasn't right. Like D&D Next knew it had to do certain types of things and it pursued a course to learn from it and then make it. And it's almost like here, it's like, well, if people didn't like it. Let's just back off. But the but your the yeah. vision has never been clear. It certainly hasn't been communicated clearly. I'd be shocked if internally it was clear. It feels um, constantly revised and just like, well, you know what? Let's retreat back to this part. Which I mean, I'm happy to be there versus somewhere that we shouldn't be. But uh, but it all feels to me like it's not solid and makes 2024 who knows but it, it may mean that 2024 is a bit more of a stepping stone when it could be something else well i think we answered this probably two years ago 18 months ago which is i don't think the design team thought they needed a new edition right i think it was <laughs> higher ups who said we need we need something to to put out on the 50th anniversary of D&D. Hey, it would be great if we had a new edition. And probably most of the people sitting there at Wizards of the Coast went, look at what 5e is doing. Look at how popular it is and growing in, in popularity. We don't need a new edition. Yeah. Maybe we could tweak it a little bit. And then comes the panic of being a person put in that <laughs> position where you're told from above, you need to make a new edition of the game. And you're sitting there going, we don't want to make a new edition of the game. People are not going to want a new edition of the game. But if we don't change it, they're just going to say, we're not going to buy this new edition of the game that that's the same as what we just played. So they were put into an impossible position. They did the best they could by putting out some compatible-ish content that was divergent from there people spoke up and said we're happy with the way it was why change it that was the market feedback that they were looking for to say okay we don't need to make a big change we can make a small change people will buy it and we can satisfy the 
you know, gods of 50th anniversary, we need sales and the gods of the players uh, who are going to be playing this game. Hence, mm. players want more options and want a little bit of more power than they had. And I have a feeling that's what they're going to get. Hopefully, the monster rules will follow suit to make it so it's a little more challenging for this new uh, breed of rules that will give players a little bit more. Well, I'm looking forward to when you and I look into Fandelver and below, because one of the things that's interesting is it's very clear that Fandelver, I'm not, not spoiling anything, Sean, but Fandelver has been tweaked mm-hmm. for what they think 2024 will be uh, in terms of language, okay. uh, in terms of approach. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so I think, you know, what what the answer isn't is vast changes to monsters, which I think we've you know heard. But somehow you have to make up for that. And so how do you do that? Well, one of the most obvious answers is we'll add more monsters. And all mm-hmm. of that to me is still a lack of vision around being able to see why Five E has been so popular. And yes, of course, players want more candy. So do my kids. I cannot just give them more candy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I the most important thing is not me giving them candy it's teaching them to brush their teeth it's good god the cost of dental care mm-hmm. right I mean, the, the, those are the hard lessons of life sometimes that yes we all want candy it's really not what we actually need and so well, focus on yeah, yeah we're se- we're separating we're separating our in-depth look at the mechanics and the game design from how it's actually used Mm -hmm. so wizards can give their kids candy in fact wizards can give them all the candy they want and the 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 people who are actually consuming the game can become the dentists (laughs) who will fix the problems that are made by this candy and everybody wins right the players win because they have more power Wizards wins because even though the game might not be mathematically uh, as good as it could be, there are still people out there buying it and they're going to fix the problems at their own tables. Uh, So I, I, you know, your analogy, I appreciate, (laughs) except no one has to pay the dental bills at the end when you're making a game that everyone's buying. Maybe Uh, the, what what I'd say is where we can, yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, you're trying to attract tons of players. And we've said this from the very beginning, mm-hmm. right? Adding feats, adding these kinds of complexities to character classes, that stuff has still remained. And when the game isn't changing substantially, I'm surprised those things weren't part of the mix of what was, you know, re-examined and thought, you know, hey, maybe everybody doesn't need all of this extra complexity, you know, but it, it feels like what they first showed us for backgrounds for uh, ancestries becoming, you know, the stone cunning becomes battleish rather than being a thing that's the exploration pillar. A number of things related to anything exploration, you know, those things have all retreated, and I don't know that that jives with the things that are drawing people to the game. But we we shall see, and I'm sure Five E will be strong regardless. But um, but I'll tell you, I'm gonna change the tenor yeah. with something I did really like. And that's this puppy right mm-hmm. here. Uh, I got a copy of Ooh. PAX. Yep. 
And uh, it's you know sort of surprising how I don't hear a ton of people talking about it. There, there are a lot of things I like. I'm, I'm not very far into it. I'm a third of the way through. Uh, I do notice the uh, larger font and shorter size of the book. Like I haven't been read it, reading that long and I've like made it through a lot of topics. <laughs> Just kind of like, wow, these are shorter books. Um, but what I really appreciate is they have taken a very concerted, they've done a concerted effort here to showing giants as not being just singularly evil and rather show the complexity behind them. And it's, it's amazing. Like if you look at the hooks, you know, I, I feel like three quarters of the hooks are things like, you know, a giant uh, has shown up near this village, but it's because they uh, lost their pet bear. Mm-hmm. And, and you read all of these and, and you're like, wow, that's cool. You know, it really shows you how you can hit, you know, a lot of stories from a lot of different sides. But a lot of times I'm kind of like, well, if I did a bunch of these, there's like no combat possibly. And and mm-hmm. and I think that maybe yeah. there's a second part that needs to come in the conversation. Um, I mean, and I'm happy that this is here, but I think there almost needs to be another part of the conversation that says like, hey, this is a game about combat, D&D, especially the way 2024 is being written. How do we keep players really interested in doing the combat stuff when you treat <laughs> your foes this way as not foes so many times? It's It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, we've got a lot to talk about in terms of Wizards of the Coast products that we have yet to be able to get a hold of. Well, my case, you got a hold of it. I didn't uh, because we have Fandelver and early release coming out in a week. uh, So I will be able to review it then, I hope. Planescape is coming October 17th. The description now says that it's for levels three to 10 with a jump to level 17 uh, in there as well which is something new and interesting as a way to support those people that want high-level content uh, without having to write a bunch of content that might not be used. So I think that was an interesting move. Um, And the Book of Many Things is coming November 14th. So uh, we've got a lot to look forward to. You uh, had a note about that Book of Many Things. Yeah, two quick notes. One is that for those running Fandelvin below, there's a free handout from the Fandelin Post on uh, D&D Beyond. So we've got a link in our show notes there. And it's just, it's basically the newspaper cover, uh, but it's a fun kind of handout to give to your players. Um, for the Book of Many Things, they've introduced a new character, right? Sometimes, in fact, just the other day, I was thinking to myself like Tasha, Morad and Kane and Big B. I mean, geez, they even made Big B an elf rather than create a new or a gnome in, instead of creating a new character. Um, and I thought to myself, are they ever gonna try to just create new characters that are, you know, famous NPCs? Uh, so apparently the uh, Book of Many Things will introduce Asteria, the first canonically autistic character in D&D. And in a Polygon article that we've linked here, uh, Wizards designer Mackenzie DeArmas discusses how she blended her own experiences with autism into the character. It's a, it's a really nice read. And, uh, and I'm glad to see that, though I tend to think that the way to introduce NPCs is less sort of setting kind of books and more in adventures where you interact with them and find them to be interesting and, and, and kind of they develop their lore over time that way, but, but it's cool. I'm, I'm lo- looking forward to seeing how they did this. Yeah. So all of those links are in our show notes and we will continue 
or hopefully in our case, start to look at some of these things when we finish our Dungeon Master's Guide uh, review. Next in the news, there is an RPG wish list for the Prison Book Program. So there was a recent article called When Wizards and Orcs Came to Death Row, and it talked about D&D as a lifeline for uh, prisoners who are on death row. Uh, if you didn't see it, if you didn't get a chance to read it, I think it was in the New York Times mm -hmm. at first. It was behind a uh, paywall, but we have a link in our show notes, uh, show notes, so you can should you should be able to access it. And it was a powerful read, uh, Teos. I know that you read it as well, so uh, I will let you. Yeah, I mean, just the the, the loss of personal freedoms that prisoners deal with, and then how D and D allows for ways to sort of regain that that sense of freedom in some ways allows people to come together and work through issues together and creates bonds that they otherwise can't create in in a prison program um so half of that article people have begun to share links to different prison programs and one of them is the prison book program which seeks specific rpg books to provide to prisons so we've got a link to that um and to the uh, kind of basic web page that it comes off of. So there's the, the wish list, and then there's the program itself as two separate links. So if you want to donate to that cause, you can. There are also programs by which you can donate specific books, but it, it's a little harder to match sort of their needs to what you might you know, want to buy on sale. So th this is a, a nice, straightforward way to do it if you're interested in helping that way. And last but not least, our creator spotlight this week, we have a few things. First, I wanted to mention that Peter Lee put up an article on BoardGameGeek.com where he went into great and beautiful detail talking about his design for the game Aberration, which is a board game set in Grim Hollow, which is Ghostfire Gaming's main setting. If you are into game design, whether it's role-playing game or board game or any sort of game design, check out this uh, blog mm -hmm. article because it is it is amazing the detail, uh, you know, all of the all of the things that Peter talked about in terms of the steps he took along the way uh, while designing this game with the folks at Ghostfire uh, is is incredible. And the crowdfunding for the game starts on GameFound on September 26th. So if you go to GameFound.com and look up Aberration, you will be able to find it and set yourself a reminder to back it if you so choose. And uh, one more thing from Ghostfire Gaming. We started putting content up on uh, T uh, drive through role-playing games, drive through RPG. And we've got our first adventure up there. It's episode one of our Agents of the Empire fable cool. called Razorfin. It's a, so this is a six episode adventure path. This first episode, uh, it's I've run a shortened version of it at conventions and the players seem to have a really good time. It's sort of James, James Bond meets D&D. &D. So it's super spies. You, you know, you go, you get your weird contraptions and try to use them and try to stop these villains from taking over the world. Uh, so that one is out there for you. And Teos, you had a couple things you wanted to call out. 
Yeah, well, first I'll say I've really enjoyed that uh, Agents of the Empire, so I highly recommend picking it up. Um, yeah, a couple things. Reminders to check out Old Town Saga by Empty Black, Kickstarter right now, Weapons of Legend by Jeff Stevens, and The Folk from Harrowthorpe by JVC Pari. We've, we've mentioned these in previous shows, but links are in, in the show notes. They're all on Kickstarter. Um, great works by these folks. Um, Kickstarters feel like they've been a little slow recently. Like all of these I thought would be bigger they're they're doing well but i thought they would have been bigger and so so check them out it's a good time to to help creators um and the last thing i'll mention is an article that is by luis losa getting started writing for paizo but it, it equally tells you how to write for wizards or any other major companies it's a short but very good read with excellent advice that covers learning by writing constantly creating a portfolio learning the language and approach of specific games and then how to reach out to get work it's a it's a good read if you're curious about how to get started you, you this is a good place to turn to but now we are going to get into our main topic today which is our look at chapter nine of the dungeon master's guide of the 2014 fifth edition DD game this chapter is called dungeon master's workshop Ooh, it does doesn't get any more exciting than dungeon master's workshop or does it we'll find out <laughs> what do we hear in chapter nine about this dungeon master's workshop you ask well let me tell you one of the paragraphs that we call out here is the options in this chapter relate to many different parts of the game some of them are variant of variants of rules and others are entirely new rules each option represents a different genre style of play, or both. Consider trying no more than one or two of the options at a time so that you can clearly assess their effects on your campaign before adding other options. And for me, that tone is perfect. It is, we're going to give you some optional things. Don't try them all at once. And evaluate how they work for your game. The one thing I wish they had done is to say, for example, mm. because they they do say, you know, try these out, make sure they work. For example, flanking. This is why we took flanking out of the game. Some people love it for these reasons. This is why we took it out. And if you add it back to the game, this could be something that happens. Uh, because it's one thing to say, test these out. It's another thing to warn someone about these little details because they those details are important. Uh, so I wish they'd taken that one, you know, one more paragraph per per section just to say pros and cons of using this. The other thing I might say is, is they don't really they focus on these options, but in terms of Dungeon Master's workshop. You know, they don't really address what about if I want to change something else? You know, and we had this question that came up recently on the show of the everything else. You know, what do I do for everything else? And they don't say here how to handle everything else. And and to go back and really address the why or how to think through whatever it is that you or your players want to tweak and to think through all the touch points. Um and, and we'll talk more about touch points as we go through these, but but I, I found it fascinating sometimes that my original take when I read this chapter was, oh, this feels like a list of 
why we didn't put these things into the game <laughs> rather than, hey, this is awesome. Try this. <laughs> and maybe that was a cynical read, but but I came away with that feeling. And and, and it's like all of these things are like, yeah, no, I don't want to put that in my game. That, no, that the way this is written. No, no way I would do that. Almost like don't tweak your game. And I think that there could have been a better conversation of when you tweak your game, here are the things to look at. Now, here are these options on it. Part of me agrees with that. Uh, but I also understand why. Because things did not get put into the core rules for a reason. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to come out and say, as much as I want that, you know, as a marketing thing, you don't want to say, hey, here are some new rules you can use. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's just, it's tough. Um, so... I I appreciate the fact that these things are here, uh, and I yeah, we can talk about each of them individually to maybe show examples of what we mean about what could have been added, taken away, or yeah. or how how it could have been uh, differently presented. Yeah. And can I just also say like the DMG, like look at that art, right? Like there are some pieces of art in this book that it's like I'm looking at for the first time because I so seldom open this book to like really go through all of it. I go to specific sections and I forget like yeah. how there's just some great art in this book. And I, and I I almost think they should just reuse it elsewhere because like we don't see it, we forget about it, right? Like just reuse it so that people see these really cool art pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first part of this are ability options, they're called. They provide a plethora of options that the DMs can choose to use. Uh, so let's dig into them. Now, some of these you may recognize from playtest packets for D&D Next, uh, which did, as we mentioned in the previous ep- uh, previous part of this episode, uh, you know, they went far afield on some of these playtest packets for D&D Next to really test out uh, how they would play and if people would it would like them. Uh, so the first thing under ability options is proficiency dice. What we got with fifth edition was as you go up in levels, you get a proficiency bonus. And that bonus is a static number plus two at first level, first through fourth, up to plus six at the highest levels. What we are suggested here as a alternative rule is rather than having that static proficiency bonus you roll a die in order to add something to your check if you are proficient so instead of a static plus two at levels one to four you would roll a d4 and add that to your check because of your proficiency and uh so they they offer this in terms of skills as a way to change the game up a bit. Mm-hmm. What did you think about this when it was a playtest thing, Teos, and what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, it's an alternate role. What's really interesting about it is that, as I recall it from, and it changed in a couple of different packets, but in a lot of the packets, it was, you know, the rogue gets a D6 and the you know barbarian gets a D4. And that meant that the different classes had the ability to hit these larger spikes if they got lucky uh, and rolled high on these mm-hmm. dice. And then expertise might give you an, a larger die size. 
And this doesn't do that. This doesn't try to replicate what those packets are. It's really just creating swinginess, right? It's taking the static average of the die, dropping a 0.5 there and saying, well, your plus two proficiency bonus becomes a D4. Your plus three becomes a D6 and so on. So we're just getting the average of the die rounded down. And to me, that's not much of a system. It just creates more swinginess on top of the already swingy D20. And so I don't know what I'm really doing. You know, this is to me perfect example of kind of a lot of these, which is that if this were a core rule from the game, lots of things would be playing off of this, right? There would be features in your class that might say, roll your proficiency die twice, take one, right? There would be features that would say, you know, expertise, bump up the die size, um, any number of other things, so that this sort of swigginess would be controlled and, and tailored to the experience. And you might even have a penalty where maybe you you don't you know disadvantage on your two dice theory roll. Lots could happen if this was a core core rule. But when this becomes a little kind of add-on, I don't know that it does much for me. I don't know if you feel that way. I I think rather than saying I like it or I don't like it, it the question is what does it do to the game? What are the benefits of it? Like exactly what I said. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, putting this here is fine. Giving it as an option is fine. The what I want to know is how does this mathematically change my game? Mm-hmm. What does a success or a failure mean in this game? Because you have a you have a better chance of getting a high number, mm-hmm. reaching a higher DC with this, but you also have the penalty of even though you're good at something, still rolling very low, especially if you're doing opposed checks. Mm-hmm. So the high-level rogue with all of the advantage and expertise and stealth and, and all of that could still fail a check against the drunken half-asleep guard. <laughs> if the guard rolls a 20, even though they're minus four, and you roll your d20 plus your 2d 2d12 but you roll one on both of those d12s all you're adding now is your dex and that's only going to max out at probably a plus 5 or a plus 6 mm-hmm. so you know you, you're now putting more likelihood that you will at some point fail even if you're really good at something yeah. now if you want that in your game then you want this system if you don't want that in your game, then you don't want this system. Yeah, and and yeah. so that that sort of thing just needs to be spelled out. Yes. If your game is heavily reliant, where one failed check may turn the campaign on its head, or may, you know, you're the one that does well. If you fail your acrobatics check, you plunge a thousand feet to your death. Uh, then you want to be careful with using this system because it is very likely that that is going to happen at some point. These failures will happen more often than they would otherwise. Uh, so, you know, that sort of thing needs needs to be spelled out. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is somebody might read this and say, oh, well, if I use it for this proficiency die for skills, why am I not using it for saving throws? Why am I not using it for attack rolls? And that's a whole different conversation. Mm. 
And I think they try at times to sort of speak to this. Like the next one is the idea that you have um, ability check proficiency. Instead of skills, you use ability checks. And there was a, a play test packet that also sort of worked this way, one of the early ones. So you, based on your class, have proficiency in your ability and there are no real skills. And so the DM would just say, well, you're trying to hide, uh, make me a dexterity check. And you might be or might not be proficient in it. And so if you are proficient, you add that proficiency bonus, the same that 5e has, you know, plus two at your first levels. Um, and you add that to the ability check with no actual skill. And, you know, it, it says um, it removes skills from the game, doesn't allow for much distinction among characters. You know, you don't emphasize persuasion or intimidation. You're equally adept at both. Like, okay, but there's a lot more to it than that. You're, 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 you know, it's a big, broad change. And, and why would I want this? And it, it, I don't know that it spells it out very well. And, and again, it makes me feel like I don't know that this is doing much, which I would say holds true because we never, I don't never, almost never hear of somebody saying, yeah, I use the optional blah, blah, blah rule from chapter nine of the DMG. In fact, what you often hear is some designer or other person on the internet saying, oh, well, that's actually an optional rule in the DMG, to which I say, well, but it's not really supported. I don't know that it really is. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't actually hate this skill variant mm -hmm. uh, for lots of things. I don't hate it. Uh, Partly because right now, how many strength, uh, how many strength skills are there? Strength-based skills, mm -hmm. athletics. Yeah. How many constitution-based skills are there? No. None. Uh, so you're 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 down to charisma, wisdom, intelligence, dexterity, mm -hmm. uh, and rather than getting into the minutia, especially with new players. I, I like that idea of yeah. just saying, all right, you're a rogue, so you're you've chosen or we've given you a dexterity skill proficiency. So anything you try to do with dexterity, you get this plus two on. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, and and but I think that's the kind of when advice you get there into should more be complex here. things. <laughs> yeah. When you get into more complex things like Oh, we're poisoned. I want to create an antidote to this poison. Uh, just to say, well, okay, give me a an intelligence check. That seems just in terms of the the reality of the fiction, seems like something you would need a little more training in it. See, that's that's not like a re just a quick reaction. That's not inherent to mm -hmm. your you, you know who you are that that requires the training so that's where you get into this question and the other thing mm -hmm. to mention with these skill variants is you get one from your class which there's a chart so you can choose you also get one from your background so instead of getting tool proficiencies or skill proficiencies you just say well i'm a rogue so i have decks from my class and I did a lot of studying as as a youngster, so I'm going to take it in intelligence, mm -hmm. and then we are going to move forward. And one thing this does solve is that idea that, well, I'm a cleric, 
but religion is a wisdom based uh you know religion is intelligence based thing yeah. you can just say i'm a cleric i'm trained in wisdom and i was a sage so therefore i'm trained in intelligence and you can you can get those fine distinctions that sometimes go yeah. against the rules of of what characters are good at and that's where it's interesting uh, to yeah. see in in these um last two options background proficiency and personality trait proficiency background proficiency says there's no skills or tools and instead of using the ability system like we're just talking about you gain your proficiency bonus when your background would apply and this is a much more loose style the way it's written here it's similar to other sort of more indie games you just sort of say yeah hey look you know i'm a noble so this you know i'm trying to talk some guards into doing stuff nobles are good at that i should be able to get a bonus and so it's a lot more situational and you say to the DM, I think I should get a bonus because this is my background. Uh, oh, I'm trying to hide in the wilderness. Well, I'm a hermit, so it should help. And then personality trait is even more interesting because now we're trying to say that those personality traits that most people don't think a whole lot about when they create in 5e for their character, those things dictate uh, you know, how you get proficiency bonuses and when. Uh, because this is a thing that ties into my personalities or flaws, and it even has some write-up around playing off of flaws, which I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what Thirteenth Ace does instead of skills? But better, you just say what you, who you are, right? You say it's like fate. It's like an aspect mm -hmm. in fate. You tell a truth about yourself, and that truth about yourself then dictates the things you are good at as you try to make checks in the game. And when I read that, I'm like, sign me up, sign me up, get rid of skill proficiencies altogether, sign me up for this. This is what I want. This is how I can bring that into my D&D &D game. But would you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Because it's oh, interesting. I, I absolutely would. I would I meet basically yeah. nobody who's doing any of these things, which I think is very interesting. I The only reason I haven't done it is because... I usually do organized play, mm -hmm. so I stick to the rules more closely. Would I love to do a game with with this? I wouldn't do the class gives you this, background gives you this. I would just do it like 13th Age does mm -hmm. it. You have 10 points to work with. You know, tell tell me tr one true thing or Mm -hmm. You know, three things about yourself and yeah. give each one a plus three. And, I was a blacksmith. We'll I lived in the woods. Then I moved to a city and here are my three skills based on that. Right. Exactly. Because I'm a circus performer and I am going to do this acrobatic thing. Yeah. Here's uh, this. Yep. So, yeah, I I am down with that. And I I understand why people aren't. Uh, but having played Fate, having played these other games... Uh, I, yeah. I'm cool. Tell me a story. Tell me a story. Let's put the dice down. Tell me a story as much as possible. Uh, speaking of variant skills that are interesting next, we get hero points. So what does this system do? This gives you a certain number of points. You get five plus half your level hero points, and they refresh when you reach your next level. So you at first level, you would have five if we're rounding down. At the end of first level, you lose all your hero points. When you become second level, you get six hero points. 
And those last you your entire level until you hit third, and then you go from there. How do you use them? After you make your roll, but before the you would apply the result, you can add a D6 to that roll, any D20 roll, attack rolls, saving throws, uh, skill checks, ability checks. Um, what, what do you think about that? It's a lot like Eberron in third edition had this, and it was called, confusingly, action points. Um, and it was basically this exact thing, but uh, had the concept that you could refresh class features in some ways, like your bardic inspiration or something like that. Um, I think it worked fine then. Uh, and and you note here that we actually did this for Oracle, Oracle of War, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, for Oracle of War, we put these in. Uh, Which was the I organized play campaign well. for Eberron 5e, we should say, for those who don't know. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And what I like about this, I like two things about this with one caveat. I like it better than inspiration because it takes out that mm -hmm. need for everyone to be paying attention and the GM to remember to give it and the players to remember to use it. Uh, it puts it in the characters, the players laps and says, you use it when you need to. Yeah. What, what I think it works best for are campaigns that are sort of longer. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a campaign where you're leveling after every four hour adventure, it can be uh, too powerful. Yeah. If you know, you're only going to have four combats and then you level, you can use one per combat or right two or however and then you're done. And it also is another thing in the game where you use it at lower levels a lot, and it's very helpful to survive at lower levels. Once you get past seventh level or so, you're failing so few times that you tend to forget about it mm -hmm. until it comes to that one bit. Oh, the Mind Flayer has, has me in its grip and it's about to suck my brain out. Oh, yeah. I need to make this check. Oh, wait, remember, remember we have hero points, even though we haven't used them in three sessions. Oh, that's right. Hero points. How many do we have? You know, yeah. that, that part of it is a little tricky to keep track of, but overall I like them. Yeah. I, I like them too. Um, I, it was fascinating to me that hero points show up here, but not action points from fourth edition which to me is a, is a similar system. And I also like it better than inspiration, especially if inspiration in 20, 2024 ends up being not about role playing or ideas or rewards for being in character or anything like that. And it's just candy. Action point is great candy. Uh, and I like hero points mm -hmm. as a sort of middle ground where it's kind of candy, but it, it really helps smooth out those places in the game where you go, man, I really want to not fail this, or I really feel I should be good at this mm -hmm. check, right? I'm making this impassioned speech. I, this should work, right? I want the game to let me win. So I'm going to roll this die and add to it. Um, so that's, I think, I think it's great. That, that's one of the optional rules that I would use for, for a campaign for sure. Next, we get two new ability scores, believe it mm -hmm. or not. We get Honor and sanity. Well, 
Teos, uh, I know that I'm short on both. So I will give you the first words on these. <laughs> well, I mean, we know these need to be remade. Both of these are, are problematic areas we'd want to really run through cultural consultants to to rethink this so much about these aspects. But I mean, very transparently, what this is trying to do is to create new ability scores that are used in very specific situations to resolve related checks. So sanity, for example, is meant to resolve checks and saves related to forbidden knowledge. It's a Cthulhu type game and you find the strange tome of whatever's and you might have to make a sanity check to use it or to not be tainted by it or whatever. And honor, you know, they mentioned very explicitly, you're running a character campaign and the idea is that you're playing to this Asian trope and you need to make these specific checks and that somehow the game would be better for having an entire ability score dedicated to honor or sanity, depending on this genre. And I mean, I've never liked comeliness or other ability scores that D&D tried to throw into the game over time and I don't like them now and I especially don't like these two <laughs> yeah I mean let's pull just strip away the 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 cultural mm -hmm. or the biological uh aspects of them ability scores are supposed to do a certain thing they're supposed to measure something about your character and who they are these two things are strange because one of them is not really about who you are. It's about what you do. Uh, right. Honor is supposed to be how, how you fit within to this society and follow its rules or not and know its rules or not. And it, it seems strange to me that they're throwing this in here when it's really not an ability score because it's not who you are, but it's mm -hmm. the choices that you make and what you know about those choices that you make, which seems to me to be not an ability score, but a role-playing thing that should be something separate. Right, like a track you uh, follow or something rather than... Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could see it being the separate track for... They have, like, prestige. They have these different... You could you could do a reputation score, uh, but again, it wouldn't be an ability score. It would be the separate track. And then sanity again, pulling out the the biological, the the sociological thoughts on this. It's 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 hit points. It's it's its own. It's something that can go up or down based on things that happen to you it's completely not an ability score. So if you wanted to do something like this, you could have it be a hit point pool and you could base checks on it that way, but not as an yeah. ability score. It seems sort of weird to me. I, I also just feel like yeah. all systems like this end up then being problematic when we get into individual campaigns or scenarios and you find that this blanket rule that you created up front just doesn't work unless it is a core aspect of your game the way that it is in you know trail of cthulhu or call of cthulhu or something like that then you have these four things that you're writing into the game and all adventures play off of them and, and they're thought through that way i i just you know this to me 
won't do much for for what we're trying to do and uh, yeah and i feel the same way about that the adventuring options have this let's tie it in here because it's sort of related this fear and horror mm -hmm. options under the next chapter that almost could have been under here because of the, the topic but mm -hmm. on fear and horror and we get rules for applying the frightened condition when facing fearful situations and for a minute you're frightened but you save at the end of each turn and it's like well this is a rule that makes sense only in combat but you know because otherwise you just sit around in this room until you're no longer frightened and and but but you need you know in theory this is a rule that should apply to many situations but it doesn't because it's so narrowly mechanically defined and, and that's the kind of thing i'm talking about where it's it's almost better not to have a rule that is supposed mm -hmm. to be a global rule when you're, it's not going to fit all the specific applications right or most specific applications and horror has a similar thing here where it's you face something unfathomable, so you do a charisma save or you gain shorter long-term madness. And it's like, have we thought through how this applies in the middle of a combat or in a long-term situation? It's just, you know, I don't know that that yeah. thought went through <laughs> properly. Well, it's, it's, it's what we talked about in the previous segment with the poison, right? Mm -hmm. It's short-term, does it matter? Long-term, does it matter? How do you combine the two? Do you need to combine the two? It, it's generally better off just to leave it for role playing and uh, get the tenor of the game from your players on how they want these sorts of things to affect their characters. Let them play it out if they want. And if they don't want, just jettison it completely and and play the game in a more straightforward manner without these optional rules. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, also in adventuring options, we get different tweaks to healing. Uh, some being very interesting and impactful, but very few of them seeing play, at least as far as we've heard. Mm -hmm. So Teos, give us your highlights here. <laughs> Yeah, healer's kit dependency. Spending a hit die during a short rest requires the use of a healer's kit. Okay. Um, this sort of, there were, yeah. there used to be playtest packets that were sort of like this. You know, you can't heal unless you use a healer's kit. Or, but but it was a sort of, that was a, like a main source of healing. And I, I don't know, this just makes you stock up on healer's kits. I, I don't know. Uh, and yeah. then it's a question whether you need proficiency or not. And, you know, the healing skill, are you making a check? But just... In a vacuum, just this little rule, I don't think this does a lot for us. Um, healing it could. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. Yeah. In in a game where money is valuable, you know, where, where money means something, mm -hmm. making someone pay for a healer's kit in order to heal, that could be a... That could be a very important thing. That could change the tenor of the game. We need to go out and make money so we could get a healer's kit. But in D&D, in D &D, it doesn't mean that much. Yeah. All it is is making the characters spend a small amount of gold or copper or silver in order to spend hit dice at a later point. Especially when um, you have a potion of healing that in theory is available. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, it needs more, right? And, and healing surges is another mm -hmm. option here. The idea that you can spend an action and you spend a surge and spend up to half of your hit dice. Uh, and you can roll and then decide when to stop. But you, you roll up to half of your hit dice. And then you can't do this again until a shorter long rest has happened. And then you regain hit dice up to your level divided by four with a long rest. With long rest. Um, 
And there's an optional optional rule that lets you do it as a bonus action the way it was in fourth edition. And again, I think this is sort of interesting, right? The idea that you could heal in combat. It gives you more recovery options. I like that. Plus, a lot of times hit dice use isn't happening a lot. Some adventures don't have short rest. So it's a neat rule in that sense. But, you know, when someone says, oh, fifth edition has an optional rule for healing surges. Wait a minute, because fourth edition's healing surges were integral to the system, right? Right. You, any healing effect, like a, a, a magic spell, a power, whatever that someone used on you, spent one of your surges generally, unless it's specified otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so surges were really a measure of how long you can go on that adventure into that dungeon through these tough situations. And when you ran out of surges, then you were in for it, right? Um, and 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 you could spend many surges because you were often spending them off turn as someone triggered a surge being being spent, and and so that is a a really different gameplay. I think that this healing surge rule could work well if you're doing something like a, you know, if you're doing Dragonlance where there aren't any clerics and there aren't any maybe divine casters or casters that can heal or Dark Sun, uh, with very few ways that you could heal. Then this could be a nice way to help with that. But but it. To me, this needs a lot more discussion and, and more teeth to really feel like a real system. Yeah. Yep. It's it's something where if you want to give your players an out, you could say, hey, once per short rest, you can heal yourself. Uh, but to as Teo said, don't compare it to fourth edition because it's very, very different <laughs> um, in terms of the into in what what healing surges did in fourth edition was put a cap on how much healing could take place during an encounter and then during you know a segment of play between zero and short rest or long rest yeah. and the game i think was better for it then uh this fifth edition went back to that first and second edition feel of you can heal as much as you want as long as you have the spells or the magic items or the consumables to do it, you could heal a thousand hit points in, in a single battle if you needed to, whereas healing surges would stop you from, from mm -hmm. going too far. Uh, and both ways are fine, but you have to just be aware of the story implications, the narrative implications and the mechanical implications yeah. of those different methods of, allowing people to heal themselves or to heal others yeah i mean and and it has to do with the overall swinginess of damage and hit points you know in third edition uh it was very common if you're a frontline fighter that a monster might take three attacks on you and the first two might take you down 75 percent of your hit points and you're hoping that third hit misses because you might go to zero in that first round and so then the healing had to be able to compensate for that in fact often what you do is after combat ended, you'd heal up, you know, with a wand to, to top off. And and so 4E was sort of fighting against that sort of tendency and putting controls. Fifth edition tends to not have those damage spikes, right? The damage that monsters inflict is way, way down and much more tempered and, and bound. Sort of the bounded accuracy approach is there for damage infliction as well, such that your healing can be a lot lower. And and happened may or may not happen during combat, and if so, is often just to give you a few hit points so that you can come back up, land some blows to end the combat, rather than being you know bars go up and down kind of approach. So, so yeah, all this ties into that, and and <laughs> it's super interesting. 
the, the last one here is slow natural healing. What did you think about this option? I I sort of like this idea of playing around with how you get hit points and hit dice back. Uh, so in slow natural healing, a long rest doesn't restore your hit points, but you can spend hit dice as a, as in a short rest to get them back. And I I sort of like this idea if you want a campaign where there's lots of time between adventures, mm. where you are doing other things in the campaign other than just adventuring. And this fits in with downtime, right? You could say, wow, okay, well, we're going to need to rest from a, for a month. We're going to have to rest for two months after that dragon's lair raid that mm -hmm. we did because we were just decimated and so during these four months what do we do well this is when downtime kicks in this is when you can actually tell stories outside and the rules support that rather than just saying okay well you were all at one hit point after you finished your raid in the dragon's lair you go back to town you rest you're ready the next day to go <laughs> face mm -hmm. the the creature that was controlling the dragon boom, you're off. And that's why you get level one to 20 campaigns that only in game time last a month. Uh, so I like this idea of doing this. You just have to be aware of what it means for the entire length of your campaign story and what it does for that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and, with, and it doesn't say that it gets rid of the rule for how you restore hit dice, where you get half of them. So it's like, you might, you, you know, you, you could be really always operating at this sort of uh, real limit on how much healing you can do with a long rest. And, and it speaks to the way the game used to be. I mean, it used to be that healing would take forever because memorizing spells took a long time. There was only so much healing that you could do. And even especially at low levels, if your cleric, you know, only took healing spells for a few days, that you might still spend a week healing everybody up, because uh, your natural healing was, you know, like one or two hit points a day or something. If you used a variant rule or something like that, it was a really low time. And Shadowrun was the same. I remember we'd play Shadowrun, someone would get shot up badly, and you'd be in the hospital for the longest time. And so the rest of the group would be like, well, I'm going to go get some cyberware installed, and I'm going to go hack the matrix of this thing and yeah you're essentially doing downtime because of the fact that the healing you know there was just this huge slowdown to the game that would take place yeah mm -hmm. yep and sort of along those lines are rest variants where we get the epic heroism where a short rest is only five minutes instead of an hour or gritty realism which goes in the other direction where a short rest is eight hours a long rest is seven days so that encourages that sort of longer form storytelling uh, that that mechanic will uh, elicit in your games. Yeah. And I'm, I'm cool with all of them. It just mm -hmm. depends on, you know, the story that's going to flow out of out of your play. Yeah. Yeah, for all of them, um, I'd like a little you, more support on, on what this means. I mean, I know the space is, is short. Um, as they're written, it just it feels like it's just idea fodder but but not really an option and it makes me think back to when dnd next was being written for the playtest version of 5e there was this conversation about optional rules modules and the 
feeling was that maybe, hey, if you want a 4E style game, you can run optional rule module A. And if you want a, you know, D&D basic, you could do that. And that never really came to happen, you know? So mm-hmm. I just feel like, um, um, like, like the game just, um, it, it, I think that was a nice vision. It would have been cool if 5e had had some clear modules. We then end up with these pieces and it's not the same to me. It's, mm-hmm. it's a little light and, 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 uh, I think that's why we don't see them used a whole lot, but yeah. <laughs> It's still yeah. fun to read them and, and dissect them. What, what I would, yeah. Well, what I would love to see is in an adventure, say, "Hey, this adventure, we're going to add this optional rule. We suggest you use it for these reasons." Yeah. And here we go. Right. This is this adventure. A short rest is eight hours, and we're going to build the campaign, build the adventure, build the campaign to enhance that. To, to show you why this is fun in this sense. And then for the next campaign, we're going to do a superhero thing where a short rest is five minutes and a long rest is two hours. And we are going to blast through levels one to 10 in, you know, in in 10 short sessions. And and this is going to be cool for that, that reason. Just yeah. to show people yeah. how you can do these things. That'd be great. I'd love to see that. I would love it if, um, you know, Spelljammer, for example, had played with, longer rest times or something like that you know just as a campaign concept would be fun well we are out of time for this episode but we will get into more of the dungeon masters toolbox workshop next time so i want to thank everyone for listening we do appreciate having your ear holes being filled with our sonorous voices Uh, And thank you specifically to our patrons. They support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Mastering D&D, I believe. Is it Mastering D&D or Mastering Dungeons? I can't remember. Mastering D&D is the name of the patron, yes, and of everything online. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So thank you to our supporters there. Shout out to our Master of Realms supporters are in our show notes. And to our Masters of the Multiverse, thank you so much. Keith Amon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you. Again, you can become a patron of the show and we would much appreciate it getting your support there at patreon.com slash mastering D. You can also support us by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel if you want to see the beautiful faces that go with these beautiful voices. Teos, where can people find you on social media? 
I am at alphastream.org. From there, you can get to my YouTubes, all the other efforts, Mastodon, AlphaStream at Dice.Camp. Uh, I should really take out from the show notes that I'm on Twitter because I'm really kind of not, uh, except when I'm retweeting things. Mm-hmm. So uh, where do we find you, Sean? Yep. Oh, you can find me still hanging out on Twitter at Sean Merwin, and the podcast is there at Mastering D&D, on Mastodon as well at Dice Camp, on uh Blue Sky at Mastering Dungeons and uh, Mastering D&D and Sean Merwin. Join us on Patreon. Join us on YouTube. So, Teos, we have done our time in the Dungeon Masters workshop. So what are we going to do now? Uh, I would like to invoke hero points in real life. Mm-hmm. And I am going to take seven days to recover one hit point. <laughs> Just explain that to your boss. Because that's all I have. Exactly.